so I want to say about this parable at the beginning is that this is not a, a true story in the sense that this did not like literally happen. Do you know what I mean? Parables were stories that Jesus told in order to illustrate something very true. Um, but if you find yourself sort of distracted by the details of like, you know, Abraham, what's he doing there? <laughs> what's this chasm? How are they talking to each other? You know, space, time. Ah, I don't know if metaphysics tend to trip you up, but in case you were that person this morning, I always was that person. So I made a vow of myself as a preacher. I wouldn't overlook the obvious things, or try not to anyway. And this is a weird story that Jesus is telling about two people speaking to one another, presumably in some kind of like heaven place and some kind of hell-like place. And um, that's weird. How are they doing it? We don't know. But the point is, Jesus is always telling stories that assumed a worldview that made sense to people. So like Hades was a concept and a construct of time and space that made very good sense to the people to whom Jesus was speaking. Um, so did the idea of Abraham's bosom and the, um, the Jews that Jesus, to whom he taught, those were people who knew whatever it meant to die, the afterlife was to be returned to our ancestors, to Abraham's bosom, a kind of paradise there. So Jesus is like, just like the incarnation. He puts on our flesh and our bones and not just like our humanity in a, a literal sense, but he also like puts on our worldview, our assumptions. And he enters into it, in this instance, in order to unsettle some things challenge some long-held, deeply-held assumptions, always about how we think about God. So the first question, anytime we're encountering a parable that we should ask of the Lord, is what Holy Spirit would you unsettle in me? Or is the challenge, what do I assume you're saying? That I already know. Help me, therefore, not to miss the thing you're actually saying. And walk me through. What does Jesus want to unsettle in the way we think and choose to live our lives about God? Here's the story. The story is about a very rich man that doesn't have a name. He's just rich man. <laughs> we don't know his name, but we do know the poorer man's name. His name is Lazarus. Lazarus is a, a form of um, a, a really familiar Hebrew name, Eliezer, and it means God helps, which I think... Um, Lazarus is, by the way, the only person in any of Jesus' parables to be named. And so anytime Jesus makes a point to like tell you a really specific detail, it probably matters. So this man's name is God Helps. The rich guy is very, very, very rich. We, uh, we know that by certain clues. His wardrobe being primary among them, purple and linen. Only the very rich people had dyed clothing, and to go along with that, a linen Boot, so you're meant to understand he is exceptionally wealthy. He also lives in a gated neighborhood. Um, so that also is a kind of clue to his wealth. And we know that he lives in a gated neighborhood because uh, Lazarus finds himself uh, tossed out, thrown out, or outside of this man's gate. The rich man walked by Lazarus uh, every single day, passed by him outside of his gate. Uh, by the way, the word that gets used for um, and Lazarus lay outside of his gate uh, quite literally means to be uh, tossed out. Lazarus was an outcast in the literal sense, um, outside of this man's home. And uh, we don't know exactly why Lazarus got there, but given our sort of first century assumptions, we're meant to understand that he had some kind of condition, skin condition. He had sores, open sores on his body. And so he's lame. He's not able to walk. 
Um, and the story that Jesus tells paints a very vivid picture about Lazarus's condition. Not only is he lame, he can't walk, but his sores are open wounds. And the dogs come by, this particularly unsettling detail Jesus throws in, um, to lick his wounds. And the faces that some of you are making right now is on purpose, right? But the point is not to just be like, ooh, yuck, you know. Um, the point is to reinforce not only, like, how pitiful Lazarus' condition is, but um, how the rich man would have seen Lazarus, which is not to have pitied him, actually. So someone in the first century in Lazarus' condition to have had the kind of skin condition that he has and to keep company with dogs would render him a curse. So in other words, um, Lazarus actually probably didn't solicit any pity from this man. And it wasn't just because he was rich. It was the way that the world had trained him to see Lazarus. So he steps over him. He's hardened his heart to him completely. He feels utterly absolved for seeing Lazarus or caring about him or whatever. And he goes on his way. Lazarus is outside of this man's gate because he hopes, well, it was often the case, people just like now. We're in Arkansas. We have table scraps here. This is something I grew up with that we didn't have in Atlanta in the same way, but like I grew up in a home where we kept scraps for the dogs, you know? There was always like a scrap bowl somewhere um, in my grandmother's house or whatever. And so they did this in the first century. There were always table scraps and those scraps got thrown onto the dogs. And so Lazarus is hoping to quite literally eat with the dogs, eat the scraps. Lazarus has in every respect had his humanity taken from him. That's the point. This rich man believed himself to be fully human and was not able to see any humanity at all left in Lazarus. He was a less than human thing. But apparently he missed something because in this sort of strange and unexpected twist in the story, man dies, Lazarus dies, the rich man dies, they find themselves in the afterlife. The rich man is in agony and flames, he's in hell. He looks up and he sees Lazarus with Abraham. He calls out, Shocked. Abraham, thank God Lazarus is there. Send him to relieve some of my pain. Close, close call. <laughs> I didn't think there'd be anybody there to send me help. I'm so glad Lazarus is there to help me. Three, three things that I want to make sure that we note about the rich man. Deplorable as he is, and you don't need me to illustrate that further, but some things we might miss. The first is that... Um, he knows Lazarus's name, uh, which means that he had been keeping company with Lazarus long enough to at least know who he is. Not maybe because he talked to him on a regular basis, but because in the world that was small enough, he just he knew who it was. His name is Lazarus, and he knows him. Which again means, remember, God helps. This man's devout. He reads his Bible every day. He knows the scriptures. The reason that I feel like that's important to note is because um, <clears throat> I've spent my whole life reading and, and teaching, to some degree, the Bible. I'll never get over how much I love it. It has enamored me since I was a very small child. But that's not to say that I love it because it's easy or because I agree with everything or because it's not without its challenges. I'll just kind of never get over the mystery of it. And yet, that will not make me immune mm. to whatever has happened in this man's heart. Whatever hardness of heart or whatever blindness 
causes him to treat Lazarus this way, he is not immune to because he reads his Bible every day. And that's not to say, and therefore, reading your Bible really doesn't matter all that much. <laughs> You'll just literally never hear me say that. It just doesn't, it's not a foolproof system, you know? Because what matters, I would say, as an aside, is that a person brings oneself to the Bible in the same way that this rich man was meant to bring himself to Lazarus, which is open and with humility before God, you know, like this. That my own worldviews, my own assumptions would be challenged by God who is higher in every way than I am higher. His thoughts are not my thoughts. And that without that posture to attend our Bible reading, this kind of thing can still happen. The third thing is that this man still sees Lazarus as his servant, even from hell, which is, by the way, meant to be funny. We don't read it and it doesn't sound particularly funny because we're not used to reading Jesus' stories this way or reading the Bible that way, but it is kind of supposed to be funny. He's a pitiful character. Even from hell, with Lazarus at the side of Abraham, this man, so hardened has he become, so deluded, in fact, has he become that he's unable to see the obvious thing, you know, the thing right in front of him. He still believes that Lazarus is someone who should bring him water, who should be sent to fetch his brothers. Abraham says there's a chasm fixed between us. So bear in mind that this is a parable and that therefore Jesus has come to meddle with our assumptions, what we think and what we feel. I would ask you the question, who in this story is in need of help? Who is the character most to be pitied? Because it obviously isn't who it appears to be on the surface. I think we've all been readers of the Bible, probably in church long enough, at least no doubt many of us in this room, to assume that that's the case. Okay, well, obviously, it's the rich man. He's the one who's meant to be pitied. He's the one, even in Lazarus's tragic state, still what Jesus is saying, as pitiful as that state is, there's something worse happening in the heart of the rich man. What is it, is the question. Why is he to be pitied? Lazarus's pity and why it's deserved is so obvious. The rich man's less obvious to see, but worse. So why would Jesus cause to pay attention to it? The issue, by the way, for the rich man is not just that he's rich. Wouldn't that be great? If we could hear a story like this and think, okay, well, the way that I can avoid being that kind of person is just like, don't ever have too much money. And that'll do it. No, unfortunately, being rich no more guarantees you a place in hell, and then being poor guarantees you a place in heaven. It just doesn't work that way. Money doesn't have that much power over us. That's the real truth. That's the thing that's hardest for us to believe or imagine. That ultimately, to God, money matters really not at all, or very little, only insofar as how we use it. But it has no real power over us. This man's wealth, however, had made it easier to keep space between himself and God and the thing that God was so clearly trying to do. And so there's the warning about money, which we talked about even some last week, and you can't get away from it in Luke's gospel. Money is not entirely neutral. I said it last week, and I'll say it again. 
It's only neutral in the same way to me that fire is neutral, is the example that I use. Fire has a place and a way to be used. Same for money. Money has a place and a way that it's meant to be used, and you have to be careful because it will turn on you. This man's wealth had turned on him. It had created space between him and God. It hardened him to the thing that God was trying to do uh, in his life. And so if I was you, I would be thinking, well, that can't be me. I don't have it. So sorry for whoever that's for. <laughs> I'll just wait till it's my turn. This can't be possibly for me. I know that I'm not talking to a room full of rich people. Well, some of you are very good at hiding it. I also know that I'm not talking to a room full of socially indifferent people or hard-hearted people. That can't be true either. I suspect, I mean, I know some of you, and many of your stories, you are the people who have, in this room, lived your lives for Jesus. A number of you, in different respects. You've been on the mission field. You sold all your things. You moved to a place you didn't know. You are the kinds of people, many of you in this room, who go to bed at night reading the news and then find it hard to know how to pray because it all feels so overwhelming. And we feel sort of paralyzed by it. So we hear the story of Lazarus, and rather than eliciting any sort of like hope or comfort, in fact, the opposite feels true. We know that Lazaruses exist. Our problem, many of us in this room, is that we feel utterly paralyzed in knowing how to help. What do we do? I just want you to know, like, not only do I know that that is true of many of you in this room, that God certainly knows that that is true of many of you in this room. And so if that is the thing that is the most obvious reading of this story, you've got some problem out there you're not fixing. There's some social evil or ill that you're meant to be healing and curing and doing something about and you're not doing it. Who are you stepping over? If that's what you assume God is saying to you through this text, then aha. He's come to do something else. That's not what he's saying to you this morning. Now, if you happen to be the kind of person who knows that you are stepping over a Lazarus and there is a pitiful and hard and tragic situation in your life that you are actively ignoring, it's for you. <laughs> uh, don't avoid the really obvious reading of the text to get at the other thing. So I'll just go ahead and say that in case it needs to be said. If you're stepping over something, don't do that. Christian. But I wonder if for more of us in this room, myself included, if the point of this story is that God had come close to this man. God helps. That's the point. The secret in the story is that Lazarus was, in fact, an instrument of grace, a gift from God that had been put at this man's door, that he actively and willfully stepped over, walked around, and avoided. Because he assumed he wasn't meant to have anything to do with it, he didn't want to have anything to do with it, whatever the reason, we don't know. He couldn't see it, he was blind to it, I don't know why. But he actively went around it. So the question that I'm asking myself in light of a text like this is what is the thing that God has put at my door in front of me, not the million things you can't do anything about? Set that over here. What is the thing in front of you that maybe God has come close to you in to help you, 
to extend grace to you, to bring comfort and new life into you that you right now are avoiding or pushing against, you feel afraid of, it feels hard or impossible, I know what brings. There is in my life, and it could be a number of things for you, but even a set of circumstances, a particular person, a family issue that is at your door, and God has called it the thing that will help. This will help. And you are looking at it and saying, that will not help. Nope. I don't want that. That cannot be good for me. It is too hard. It is too ugly. It is too gross. Too much. I don't want it. And what if there's a grace there? Not what if. I suspect if that sounds true to you, this is God saying to you there is grace here. There is life here. There is help for you here. We are those who have given our lives, so we say, to following Jesus. And it is going to be a life that is going to cost us. Something. We know that already. I don't, however, think we probably spend enough time focusing on what it is that was gained. I want to be able to say with Paul, I consider all of it a loss compared to the surpassing what? You know your Bibles. Greatness. Of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord. I want to know him and the power of his resurrection. And if that means that I attend to my Lazaruses when they present themselves, then so be it. Is that a cost, really? So is there something in your life that makes you feel afraid or unworthy or you want to avoid, like a threat? Can you look at it and say, I see you, God. I'll tend to you. Lazarus's circumstances were not good. It was a heartbreaking situation, a tragedy. I don't believe, and I've said this to you before, that God puts us in a position to declare things good that are not good. I don't believe that God wanted Lazarus to suffer. I do believe, however, that he was working through Lazarus' suffering to bring healing and redemption to the people around him, as well as to himself, because that's what God does. Through a broken world, he is at work to bring healing and redemption and restoration. So there's something that could be in your life that is actually bad, broken, not as it should be. Rather than avoid it or push, press away from it or try to just get through it as fast as you can, can you hear Jesus say, what if I'm in this, though? What if I'm here? What if the help of God is here? Don't just push through this as fast as you can. Don't run away from it or avoid it. Look for me in it. Jesus himself, I think, told this story knowing, of course, that he was going to the cross. Jesus knew what that would mean, that people would see him as Lazarus, first shunned by God, something to be avoided. 
we live in a world that is full of myself included. Many of us trying to grapple with what it means to be Christian, to understand who Jesus is. And we struggle to know the degree to which we feel comfortable identifying with him. And I get that. Everybody I know is deconstructing some form or another, and well, they should. But I really do believe that it is in our willingness to look at him and to identify with him and to follow him into the hardest parts of his calling that we find the hope of God. I believe that for you. That there is a different kind, a stronger, better, fuller, richer kind of life, a surpassing greatness that God wants to give to you. And Jesus is, I believe, reminding us, please just walk away from it. Don't shun it. Don't push it away. We have to sit with this, tend to it, look at it, put it on, pick it up, in order to be who we're meant to be. And what if our joy is there? What if our healing is there? What if our hope is there? I believe it is. Holy Spirit, will you help us, Lord, to hear Jesus? Will you, Lord, help us to look at our own lives, to examine our own hearts? To see, God, what we cannot see without you and apart from you? Where have you put a Lazarus in our lives? Where are you, God, at work? Will you draw us, Jesus, to yourself? It's in your name, Lord, we pray. Amen.